You're listening to Brainwaves on WRBB 104.9 FM. I'm your host, Susanna Mays. On today's program, I sit down with communications professor Greg Goodale, where we try and tackle the topic of bad academic writing. So let's start at the beginning. I've been frustrated in many of my classes, and I bet many listeners are as well, because we're assigned to read mountains of peer-reviewed journal articles. And to be blunt, they're all pretty boring. So why do you think academic writing is this way? Such poor quality. Okay, so I'm going to answer that in two different ways. Um, first, I'm going to answer it with the academic's response, which is that academic writing isn't poor. It's great. Um, <clears throat> there is an argument to be made, and Judith Butler makes it the argument in an essay she published in the New York Times, where she says that if academics are challenging the way we think, the very premises of the way we think, the order of things, that our worldview, then they have to write technically and difficultly because they're, they're overturning centuries of what we thought was common sense. That's the argument for turgid academic writing. And I think that's accurate for maybe a dozen academics in the world right now who are really pushing the boundaries of what we know and what we understand. But for the mass, vast majority of academics, we write poorly because it's the way we were trained to write. And it's the way we are expected to write. And so if you want to get promoted at a good university like Northeastern, you have to publish in journals. And the journals are edited by people like me who are academics and who expect people who are writing for the journal to write like academics in a really complex kind of form because if you're writing using these really big words, it demonstrates that you are knowledgeable about the field. That's not true, but that's how we practice it. And if you grow up and your entire life is spent in academia and you graduate, you have a PhD and you become an academic, you're going to write the way you've been trained over that entire period of time. Um, and, you know, I believe that there are a lot of academics who would like to write better, but the way the structures work, you want to get promoted Bad writing is the way to get promoted, believe it or not. Yeah, and it almost becomes this sort of like self-fulfilling cycle of people being told, maybe wanting to write different, but they sort of have to do that within the confines of of the university. And then that they might go on and teach someone else their bad writing that they were forced to do in the first place. Exactly. Right? If this is what you think is going to get you promoted, then of course you want to share it <laughs> with, with young people. <laughs> Because the assumption is, well, that's how they're going to get promoted. Um, except most young people don't become academics. Some do. And they should learn how to write academically. And I'm sorry for them because they're going to have to write some really bad stuff. Um, but the vast majority of students don't want to become academics. They want to work in the real world where academic writing is nobody reads academic writing in the real world. Um, and so, yeah, it's it. It definitely becomes a self-perpetuating cycle. Academics train the next gener generation of academics to become academics. And so it's just this self-repeating, this is how it's done. When, in fact, that's, and that's how it's done in a very particular space, the ivory tower. And unfortunately, the ivory tower is no longer good at reaching out to the rest of the public. We are no longer doing a public good with our scholarship. It's mostly... Naval gazing. Now, this is not true for the sciences um, and for engineering, where a lot of the stuff has to be highly technical, though even there, the, they don't have to write as technically as they write. 
Uh, and they are continuing to make discoveries and things of that nature. But if you're in social sciences, if you're in humanities, there's really no reason to write in a really turgid manner unless you are literally trying to upset the order of things. So I know you're someone who's sort of kind of breaking out of the cycle. Could you talk a little bit about sort of how your classes present writing in a different way and you sort of kind of go against sort of the way that other academics are? I don't sort of go against. I full on. <laughs> Definitely go against. Yeah. Um, so at the very beginning of my semester, I encourage students to break the English language. They struggle with that because, you know, they've been beaten down into believing that they have to write everything perfectly grammatically correctly. Uh, and that sentence was not grammatically correct. And I'm not going to apologize for it because people understood what I said. That's okay. Um, the English language yeah. is incredibly flexible and you might get people like George Orwell who tell everybody, no, you have to obey every rule all the time, which is not quite what he said, but it's definitely how he's interpreted. Um, no, if you want to be persuasive, you have to know how to break the English language. The great poets break the English language all the time, and it's why we remember them, because they say things that were never said before. Uh, Shakespeare, I mean, so much of what he said was new. It had never been dan done or said before in the English language. And it became taken into the English language. And I mean, he is everywhere in the English language because he broke the language. Um, another art, another essay, essay I'm going to put in quotes, I have my students rewrite, is a sentence. And it's an authentic sentence. So it's something that's authentic to them, something that's real, something that they thought of. And students struggle with that. It's, what is authentic? And, you know, their authentic voice has been beaten out of them because Class after class after class, they're told, you can't use the word I or me when, when it, of course, it's I or me that's writing the paper. <laughs> it's, not, yeah. it's, it's not a dispassionate scientific artificial intelligence computer that's writing it, though there are those that are out there. <laughs> no, it's, yeah. it's, it's a live human being who's writing that essay, and they've, they've been told that they are not I. And I try to restore that. Yeah. And those are like those rules that are just were taught growing up in an academic setting saying you need to follow these rules by not saying I think I believe in your writing. It sort of almost becomes dispassionate. Well, it's intended to become dispassionate because the idea of academics is that you speak the truth and that you marshal your evidence and that your arguments are are based on logic and rationality and things of that nature, when the fact is the vast majority of the human experience is an emotional experience. And so even scientists are emotional in their writing. They're emotional about which field they choose. They're emotional about wanting to get ahead in the world, either through promotion or fame or money or any of those things. And so all of us, anybody who's publishing, there is a self-motive in publishing. And you know, trying to beat the eye out of us actually robs us of our ability to recognize that the writer has a bias. And if nothing else, that bias is in self-interest. And so, yeah, I mean, we're, we're beaten out of a lot of things because mostly because the humanities and social scientists looked at how fast science was growing and how true science was. And they thought to themselves, "Ooh, we need to be more like them. And the fact is, they need to be the exact opposite of science because they are the opposite of science. They work with human beings. They work with things that are not certain. Um, and yet the way they write is this kind of certainty, this kind of perfect, dispassionate, logical, these are the facts. You're talking about human beings. 
mean, those are your facts. They may not be somebody else's facts. I mean, <laughs> Kellyanne Conway, as much as she might be controversial, when she said alternative facts, I mean, there's actually a little bit of truth to that. <laughs> yeah, and that's sort of that's something that they they believe. And kind of going off of that, I know your your interest is in political and advocacy writing. Sort of what effect does sort of this good versus bad passionate versus dispassionate writing have on these political sort of um, contexts? Well, particularly students who are trying to become writers of advocacy or writers of politics. Um, yeah, I mean, there are plenty of, this was my experience coming out of uh, undergrad and then law school. I worked on Capitol Hill and <laughs> my first writing assignment was to write a response to a constituent who had written in about whales and protecting whales which I thought was great. Okay, great. And, you know, I wrote a technical legal <laughs> response to this constituent. And, you know, fortunately, all my work was going to be edited. And the, the legislative director edited my work, and there was more blue ink on the page than black ink when he turned wow. back to me. <laughs> you know, I, I needed to learn how to write to people, to real human beings, rather than to write to some kind of a standard that promotes an ivory tower look on the world. Only us matter. Only the people you're writing to, the, the 10 people who are going to read your published essay, nine of whom are graduate students, only they are going to ever read your article. And I mean, why do we want to write to 10 people? I don't think any of us do, except that that's, that's what we are given. And that's what we assume because it's what all of academia has been about. Yeah. And a lot of these issues that, you know, people are writing about are really current issues that like sort of are the problems facing our world. But if and they're the ones doing the research, but it's not going out to the people who need to read it. Well, yeah, well, there's something to be said about the collapse of journalism. Um, and there is also, yeah, something to be said about how academics are usually two two years behind the curve because it takes a couple of years to get stuff published if you're not in the sciences. In some of the sciences, they're very good at publishing things quickly. Um, and there are ways that they have different kinds of levels. So something could be uh, pre-reviewed, uh, and you can still read it, but it's pre-reviewed, and then it becomes reviewed, and then it becomes much more legitimate. In humanities and social sciences, typically, you begin writing at least two years before you actually end up publishing. And by the time you publish... Two years have passed by, and presumably things have happened in those two years. And <laughs> as it turns out, things happen faster and faster and faster. The more the media grows, the more technology expands, the more communication is available to everybody everywhere in the world. And so, you know, if you wrote two, two <laughs> like if you wrote about politics four years ago and just getting it published now, and that would be true of a book, by the way, in uh, an academic book. <laughs> everything you wrote about four years ago is no longer true. Yeah. And then you spent, you poured all this probably multiple years of your life into writing this book and then it gets published and then it's already out of date. Yeah. And then, you know, nobody reads it. And it's, it's exactly true for most stuff in academia that nobody reads. I mean, they might <laughs> like, <laughs> like the, the grad student that came up to me at a conference and said, um, I've got some questions for you. I read your book. And my response was, why? <laughs> why would anybody read that book? It's out of date now. Um, it was always out of date. It was out of date the day it was published. And it's really badly written. You can find the same things if you're paying attention to 
some of the good writers at the Washington Post or the New York Times or National Review or I mean all there there are some really good writers out there who are responding contemporaneously to things that are happening now. Um, and it's academics are not doing that. They're 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 trying to make sense of something that happened when they were writing and is no longer happening. And so we know this that increasingly researchers in the humanities and the social sciences are increasingly irrelevant. We're increasingly just talking to ourselves when our fields once upon a time would have been fields that were talking to the public. And, you know, I, my bet is that the vast majority of scholars would like to be talking to the public and not to the five people who will read the article that they published here or the 10 people who read the book. Yeah, it, it is. It's a, it's a terrible cycle and we've gotten so deep into it that we can't see our way out of it. Yeah, I think that also relates sort of to the power of like language and probably the fact that, or definitely the fact that our language isn't changing and adapting and you're know, saying you're using the same, these like special set of words to try to make yourself appear more academic, but those are words that probably the average person doesn't use as much. Like hegemony, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's definitely one. <laughs> I've seen that word so many times. Um, I know what it means, but I'm not sure why we need to use the word hegemony. Um, we could just describe it. It makes sense. It's not that hard. Probably use more words and to capture that one fact, and maybe it would be better and people would understand it. Yeah, and I, and I think in a manner that could allow you to make a really persuasive argument coming out of that, because it's about the people and power. And I mean, I want to hear about the people and power, not hegemony. <laughs> exactly. That's going to reach me. That's going to persuade me. I think that goes to the point where it's the people who are in power who sort of decide the language, both whether you're talking about who's writing the dictionaries, but are also just sort of the academics that sort of have control over the language that's used in their field. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, so the great example is uh, in the 1700s, rich white guys wrote the dictionary. And as it turns out, they decided that anything emotional that guys do, we're not going to be defined as emotional in the dictionary. And so if you think of words like aggression or arrogance or ambition or competitiveness, all of these are words that are not typically thought of as emotion words, but they're emotion words. <laughs> these are not places that come from logic and rationality. <laughs> these are places that come from deep inside. And so, yeah, of course, they're emotion words, but we've, re we've redefined them as not emotion words so that we can define women as emotional. But if we accepted all of these terms as emotional, then men and women would be equally emotional because we're all human <laughs> and humans are emotional. And that's OK. Yeah. And sort of that goes to the idea that sometimes we think that language is static, but in fact, it's really dynamic and can influence sort of how we view different people and how we view the world around us. Absolutely. And um, as we, it's, this, this whole thing about academics and their own language, it's a gatekeeper into, it's a gate into the ivory tower. And unless you speak the language, unless you have the magic word, you cannot enter the gate. Um, and so, yeah, there is a way that we're also enforcing this at the academic level, that these are the words you must speak in order to gain entrance to knowledge or the other kinds of things like that. And so, yeah, we demand that our students write turgidly. And when we grade, we search for the, 
a couple of words here or there to make sure that, oh, they understood the word hegemony. Okay, I'm going to grade them up for that. Um, and rather than reading a 20-page paper, we just skim it because if you're a professor at Northeastern University, you do not have time to grade 20-page papers. So we skim it and we find the words that suggest that the student has been listening to us and we say, oh, this is an A paper. And if we don't find the words, then, you know, it's not an A paper. Or we just weigh whichever paper is heaviest and give those the A's. <laughs> so if you see, so I think there's sort of, there's multi, the problem exists in multi-stages. You know, there's the problem of journal art or uh, like journals themselves not willing to accept papers that don't fit the mold. And then there's also the universities that put the demands on professors to always be publishing in journals. Sort of how can we break the system and what are ways that we can sort of leave this old way of thinking behind? Yeah. Um, so the dream would be that uh, the journals and academics in general say, hey, this is not working. <laughs> Nobody reads our stuff anymore. So we're going to change the way that we publish, and we're going to look for our journal art authors to write well. Or universities could say, we're not going to demand that academics publish essays in uh, peer-reviewed journals as a determinant for how good their scholarship is. We're actually going to try to figure out how much of the public that professors reach, which would definitely require us to speak and write much more clearly. Um, neither of those is going to happen. What is going to happen is essentially most universities will disappear in the next 10 or 20, maybe more than that, but 10 or 20 years is the timeline that a lot of people are talking about. And it's because universities are bundles of things that the vast majority of students don't need. So, like, do you need the health school here? I've never stepped foot in it, <laughs> I must admit. And there's, you know, I'm paying for a lot of things that I never use. Yeah, you're you're paying for stuff in the health school that isn't <laughs> like like bodies that respond like actual human beings when they're beaten or when you operate on them or things of that nature. Yeah, you don't need that. Do you go to basketball games? <laughs> Probably not that much. <laughs> Why are you paying for the basketball team? <laughs> exactly, yeah. When you're paying for all these things that you don't use, there's sort of the, it's not the same passion, you know, personal connection that you have with with the learning. Yeah, you're paying for an entire engineering library. Why are you paying for an engineering library? Is it that are you going to consult those books? No, I mean the fact is that it's a bundle of sticks and each one of those sticks can be unraveled and done into its own thing. And so if you wanted a good education with a focus on economics, you could find that. And actually it would be much 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 cheaper than the education that you're getting in Northeastern because you would be only paying for the things that you actually need as someone who wants to study economics, but also wants a kind of broad-minded education. And so you would have some faculty who are really good at teaching you about everything. You would have some faculty who are good at teaching you about writing. And you would have great faculty there who would teach you about economics. And that's, that's actually how, I, I can, <laughs> that's how the university used to work. And it no longer works that way because, you know, these are now giant corporations, multi-billion dollar corporations because they bundled all of these things into one stack of things. And so that's, that's a model that strikes me as something for the past. With the new technology that we're developing, we're already crushing a number of industries. We've crushed taxi drivers. We're soon going to crush truck drivers and airplane pilots. We're soon thereafter going to crush anybody who has writing assignments. 
<laughs> if you're writing a report for a corporation, that can be done by AI now. And so, I mean, what's the point of all these people who are in white collar jobs writing all these reports that take a lot of resources when you can just feed all the information to a computer and have it spit it back out at you, written in better English typically than the people you employ because they went to university <laughs> where they learned how to write like academics. Yeah, I mean, it's just the whole model is not sustainable. And, you know, you're, in your lifetime, in my lifetime, we're going to see it begin to fall apart. And yeah. I think that's a great thing. Yeah, because I think like the difference, it comes down to that human beings are, are passionate people and they sort of care about these big issues and they might want to talk about them. But if the university system encourages them to be dispassionate, there's sort of a disconnect with how we want to write. Yeah, <laughs> let me take that in two directions. The first direction is it's good to be passionate, but you cannot be passionate about everything. You cannot be an engineering major and an economics major and a writing, creative writing major and a passionate sports fan of basketball and a fashion designer in a fashion club. And all of that, you can't not, you can't possibly be passionate about all of those things. I mean, the, the great thing about passion is it allows us to stake ourselves out as individual. These are the things we're passionate about. These are the things we want to know more about. And the university system is, is, is great because it provides all those kinds of opportunities. But with the technology we have today, we don't need all of that in one space. We don't need universities to be Walmart. We need good teaching. And we might need you know, to pick a teacher over here and a teacher over there and a teacher over here. But we don't need, we don't need all of the stuff that the university has given to us. And you're right. I mean, students have had this idea that they have to be dispassionate when they write. <laughs> which makes no sense at all. I mean, the the entire history of writing is people writing things because they wanted to write things, people taking notes about things because those things were important to them. It hasn't been, it's only been in the past 150 years where academic writing has become so technical, so obtuse, that it's almost impenetrable unless you're in the actual field. And so, yeah, I mean, we don't want you to use the word I. That makes no sense to me whatsoever because it's you who are making the argument in these essays. We don't want you to be passionate about it. We want you to defer yourself. And so it's actually scholars who are making the argument rather than you. That doesn't make any sense to me at all. It's your argument. You are writing this thing. Um, and so, yeah, this idea that that we have to be perfectly logical as we're writing these things because that's the only way we're going to get to truth is junk. The vast, all of us are humans. We're, we're emotional. And so all of us have ulterior motives for the things that we write, whether it's greed or promotion or fame or any of those kinds of things. Or for some of us, just the ability to be creative, just the ability to connect. But we don't teach those things in college anymore. Yeah. And I know that for myself and I'm sure a lot of other people, you know, you, when I was younger, I loved to read. I loved to write and sort of was passionate about that. But then going through a system that sort of forces you to be dispassionate, you sort of lose that, lose that love for reading and writing. How sad is that? This past summer, I worked with about 30 of my former students in a poetry group just to get us through COVID. Um, and it was, it was joyous. There were students who were hesitant because they didn't care about writing anymore, except that they used to, like you. And those were the students I really wanted to encourage. Okay, join the group. There's no grade here. There's no judgment here. Just join the group and write. Um, and they did. And the stuff that they wrote is 
gorgeous. <laughs> and it's personal. And it's the kind of stuff that connects to human beings. And it's not academic. And it has the word I in it. Oh, my God. The magic of the word I. <laughs> it is gorgeous. It is beautiful. And we connect to I. We don't connect to the royal we. <laughs> we, we connect to people. And so, yeah, the poetry is just gorgeous because they got to write again without the constructions that they, they live under, which is you can't use I. Um, you have to use the passive tense so that you can kind of defer responsibility onto somebody else. You have to use scholars say that this is the fact. You can't say I say that this is a fact. I mean, all of that is just abandoned when you get into a poetry group and you begin to write about what you're feeling and experiencing, which is why we should be writing in the first place. No love poem was composed by, <laughs> by a scientist who's trying to explain the chemical things that are happening in your brain as you're experiencing love. I mean, that's just not the way to do it. Yeah, no, I, I agree. So maybe I'll finish up with sort of what advice do you have for students sort of in the system, maybe in a broken system, sort of to kind of re re-engage with writing, you know, in short of taking your classes, sort of how can students navigate the system? Well, uh, there are multiple pieces of advice here. First, read good writing. I mean, you don't get that many opportunities to read good writing in college. I understand that. And sometimes you're just so tired of reading the garbage you have to read. You don't have time to do more reading. That's unfortunate and it's a bit sad. But when you get opportunities, find good writing and read it, embrace it, live in it, live in it. I mean, I love personal essays because it's an opportunity to step into the shoes of Ta-Nehisi Coates or someone like that and to see the world from a new perspective that you've never had before. Um, and so, yeah, my advice, read good stuff because that's definitely a start on writing good stuff. And my other advice is when you get a break, write, write good stuff, right? Don't write the, the stuff that you've been trained to write, write the stuff that you want to write. Keep a journal, write poetry, share your poetry, talk to other people who like writing. It turns out that most of us like writing. And there's a reason for that. When we're writing in ourselves, we're good at it. We say things that are profound and meaningful. We say things that connect to other people. That We say things that make people love us. Not because yeah, we're perfect. Right. And not because we're perfectly logical and rational and all that other kind of garbage. But because we're imperfect and we're writing imperfectly and we're embracing the fact that we must write imperfectly in order to write beautifully. Um, and that's not something you're ever going to achieve if you're writing like an academic. <laughs> I I got you. Well, thank you for taking the time for chatting about this. You know, I'm going to make a goal to put I in my next essay, <laughs> make it passionate and make it exactly. Maybe I will. Maybe I will. This episode of WRBB's Brainwaves was hosted by me, Susanna Mays. This recording wouldn't be possible without the help of Caleb Dreisman, our podcast director, and Andrew Sendry, WRBB's general manager. This episode of Brainwaves was mixed and edited by our audio engineers. Special thanks to the WRBB leadership staff, Northeastern University, and Northeastern Student Activity Fee for funding this podcast. Our theme music is W by Mari Getty. Head to wrbbradio.org where you can find the latest episodes of all our podcasts, listen to our internet live stream, and read up on the latest music reviews. And make sure to follow us on all social media at WRBB Radio. Thanks for tuning in.